Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Charles Chamberlain, chair of the group Democracy for America, who assesses the outcome of the 2020 election and Democratic legislators' current debate over who's to blame for the party's down-ballot losses. Mel Goodman, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, who speculates on the possible motivation for President Trump's recent mass firing of the nation's civilian military leadership. And Matt Gertz, a senior fellow with Media Matters for America, who examines the now rocky relationship between Republican propaganda outlet Fox News and Donald Trump. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Fifteen Hong Kong opposition party lawmakers announced on November 12th they are resigning en masse to protest the disqualification of four fellow pro-democracy legislators. The resignations ensued after Beijing's top lawmaking body, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, empowered Hong Kong's government to bypass the local judiciary in order to ban any lawmakers from serving who are deemed unpatriotic or considered to be conducting themselves in a manner that endangers national security. When Hong Kong, a former British colony, was returned to China in 1997, the territory was granted various protections and the power of limited self-government. However, Beijing has steadily chipped away at guarantees in Hong Kong's basic law meant to enshrine a one-country, two-systems philosophy of governance. A proposed extradition bill that would have allowed some people accused of crimes in Hong Kong to be transferred to mainland China to face courts there provoked major protests last year. The Hong Kong government eventually withdrew the bill, but Beijing later passed a sweeping national security law that includes harsh penalties for anyone in Hong Kong found guilty of supporting secession, subversion of state power, terrorism, or collusion with foreign entities. After the COVID pandemic hit Kenya, many city dwellers sent their children to live with family members in rural villages, believing the children would have less exposure to the virus. However, these children became more susceptible to contracting malaria, which is spread by mosquitoes breeding in irrigation ditches. Two years ago, 400,000 people died of malaria, two-thirds of them under the age of five. To prevent the blood-borne disease, governments in Kenya and elsewhere in Africa handed out insecticide-treated mosquito nets. The new nets were scheduled to be passed out in April, but the distribution was delayed due to the pandemic. Long lines for supplies and poverty soared, according to The Economist magazine, making people more vulnerable to the illness. A World Health Organization study predicted that in a worst-case scenario, the malaria death toll in sub-Saharan Africa, where the vast majority of fatalities occur, would double in 2020 to 769,000. Now, 90% of anti-malaria campaigns are back on schedule. Public health officials assert that it's imperative that all children go to school where they receive regular malaria tests and have access to medical treatment. But health workers are fighting more than malaria and the coronavirus. 
Doctors and nurses are under attack by the terrorist group Boko Haram, which dismisses Western science. Even as malaria deaths in Nigeria have fallen by nearly 50% over the last decade. Early personnel announcements by President-elect Joe Biden's transition team have given hope to progressives that the centrist former vice president will bring innovative leaders into the new government. The American Prospect reports that reformers dominate agency review teams announced for the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve, but pro-industry players dominate the team assigned to the Office of Management and Budget. The Treasury team, led by former Biden counselor Don Graves, includes a racial equality advocate and staff from labor unions. However, the review team assigned to the Office on Management and Budget is full of people connected with tech companies, including Lyft, Airbnb, and Amazon Web Services. Silicon Valley has our eyes on the little-known but powerful Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs at OMB, which reviews all regulations across the federal government and uses cost-benefit analysis to determine whether or not new regulations are recommended. Progressive activist groups, including the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats, floated a list of proposed progressive cabinet secretaries, including Elizabeth Warren at Treasury, Bernie Sanders as Labor Secretary, and Barbara Lee as Secretary of State. The list was dismissed as a moonshot by the New York Times, but the effort indicates a rising level of expectations from grassroots activists who helped elect the Biden-Harris team. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Despite multiple pre-election polls that predicted a blue wave of landslide-proportion victories for presidential candidate Joe Biden and congressional Democrats, the tsunami never materialized. While Joe Biden won the popular vote by more than 5 million ballots, he didn't rack up the electoral college margin that many pollsters thought was assured. Democrats did, however, win two long-running Republican-controlled states, Georgia and Arizona. While House Democrats managed to hold on to their majority won in 2018, the party suffered losses that set off heated debate and finger-pointing. Democrats, who held a 35-seat advantage before the 2020 election, gained three seats while losing nine to Republicans in mostly conservative districts. There were expectations that Democrats would gain control of the U.S. Senate, but there, too, Republicans defied predictions to lose only one seat. Two Senate runoff elections in Georgia on January 5th will determine which party controls that body. Democracy for America, a political action committee founded by supporters of Howard Dean's 2004 presidential campaign, has more than one million members. In the 2020 election, the group endorsed more than 50 progressive candidates in 19 states. Your reporter spoke with Charles Chamberlain, chair of Democracy for America, who assesses the outcome of the election and Democratic legislators' current debate over who's to blame for the party's down-ballot losses. The bottom line is, is that what we saw out there was an incredible amount of energy for defeating Trump. 
uh, and that energy was there. Uh, and people thought that that energy would uh, transfer to down ballot races. Uh, but uh, big surprise, it didn't. When the only message of the Democratic Party is to defeat Trump, the good news is, is that it worked and succeeded in electing Joe Biden and actually defeating Trump. But it only worked for the candidate that was running against Trump. Everybody else didn't have an effective message. If you go back and you look at 2018, when we flipped the House with gigantic numbers, we did it because we ran on health care. Everybody ran on health care. Many of them specifically ran on Medicare for all. But every candidate ran very clearly on a message that will defend and improve Obamacare. Uh, that was 2018. We won there. Also in 2018, what did we see in the Senate? Again, they only ran on a message of, isn't Trump terrible? Uh, and, of course, we didn't flip it in 2018. The only candidate that came close was Beto O'Rourke in Texas. And what did he do? He ran on health care and he ran on climate change. Following the elections, there were accounts of really rancorous debate within the Democratic Party about the election results. With the House losing some seats, moderate Democrats were talking about the destructive slogan of defund the police, Medicare for all self-declared uh, Democratic candidates who are members of uh, socialist parties. And you also had uh, folks who were proclaiming the Green New Deal. These moderate Democrats basically say that this move to the left on the part of the party and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is going to destroy the Democrats, especially in the midterm election coming up in 2022. What about that argument you think is flawed? Why did these candidates, these moderate candidates, lose? Did they lose because the radical left, or did they lose uh, because they ran really crappy campaigns? Uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, people don't like to take uh, credit for running a bad campaign. So what they do is instead is they look for somewhere else they can blame. And it's a classic scenario for establishment corporate Democrats to go and blame the left for being extreme, for being over the top. And yet the reality is, is that if you look at issue after issue that the left, so the so-called radical left supports, uh, those are supported by the majority of Americans. Uh, you know, raising minimum wage won in Florida. You know, raising minimum wage has won since 2002. It has won in all 22 states that it has been up. Uh, that includes Alaska, Montana, Kansas, you name it, raise minimum wage wins, right? But how often did we hear Joe Biden or the candidates running for Congress in uh, Florida talk about raising minimum wage? Not very often. In fact, almost never, right? Uh, I think if we go to the part about things like po uh, police reform or, or what people stand for, you know, when you think about what Joe Biden stands for on climate change, do you know the answer, what he stood for? My guess is the first thing that comes to your mind is you know that Joe Biden didn't stand for the Green New Deal because he said it repeatedly. You know that he will not ban fracking because he said it repeatedly. But do you know what he actually stood for on it? And most people don't. And so if you go to an issue like defund the police, do you know what Joe Biden wants to do on police reform? You don't, because he barely ever talked about it. Instead, what you know is that Joe Biden is against defunding the police. Or you think he's for it because all you heard was the Republicans say that, and you never saw a good uh, argument back from Joe Biden about what he was actually for. You just saw him you know, backed into a corner on the Republican rhetorical playing field because he insisted upon saying, uh, I'm against uh, defunding the police instead of talking about what he really wanted to do. If you look at the numbers, of the 112 sponsors of Medicare for All, not a single one of them lost re-election, not, not one of them. And that includes, uh, you know, people like Ann Kupatrick in Arizona who won re-election even though there are more registered Republicans in her district than Democrats, or Jared Golden in Maine, which was in the same district that Trump won in 2016. 
You know, and of course, progressive favorites like Katie Porter or Mike Levin, who each flip seats held by Republicans for more than 40 years in the heart of Orange County, California, home of Richard Nixon, they won. They won, right? So, and then if you go to Green New Deal, uh, 98 co-sponsors of Green New Deal, and only one of them lost. Only one. I think that says more about Florida than it says about Debbie Mercasel Powell, who is the candidate that lost. So uh, I think that what we need to do is we need to look at uh, the Democratic Party needs to look deeply at its roots and what its values are and what it actually stands for. And when we stand up and fight for those values, things like Medicare for all and Green New Deal, or even just health care for all and to fight climate change, if we just stand for those things for real and actually campaign on them, then we can bring an entire ticket. We can bring up and down the ballot and we can win. If we only stand for what we don't stand for, like uh, defeating Donald Trump, or I'm going to beat him, or um, when we talk about climate change, just saying I will not ban fracking. Uh, those kinds of things don't work uh, up and down the ballot. That was Charles Chamberlain, chair of the Progressive Political Action Committee, Democracy for America. Find more commentary on the post-election internal debate within the Democratic Party by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the days following Donald Trump's election loss to former Vice President Joe Biden, he refused to concede, saying the election was rigged, and fired four of the top officials at the Pentagon, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and the Chief of Staff to the Defense Secretary. The President has, in the parlance of the military, decapitated the nation's civilian military leadership. In their place, he's appointed a group of political sycophants who have neither the stature nor the experience to undertake these jobs. While many observers dismiss the idea that the mass firings are preparations for a coup, there is speculation that Mr. Trump's action may be an act of retribution for what he viewed as disloyalty. One point of open conflict between the President and former Secretary Esper was his opposition to using the Insurrection Act to deploy active-duty U.S. troops to American cities, where mass racial justice protests were taking place in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd. There's also concern that the firings may have come in advance of a possible move by Trump to launch attacks on Iran or Venezuela before he leaves office in January. The New York Times reported on November 16th that the president asked senior advisors about what options he had to take action against Iran's main nuclear site. The next day, the Trump regime announced a major troop withdrawal from both Afghanistan and Iraq. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, who had a 42-year government career at the CIA and State Department. Here, Goodman speculates about the possible goal of President Trump's mass Pentagon firings and the dangerous period ahead before he leaves office on January 20th. If I were the analyst for Country X, where a president has just lost an election and is committed to overturning the results of the election, and then conducts uh, a purge not only of the Ministry of Defense, but of the entire national security community, uh, because it involves the, the Secretary of Defense in this case, the number one uh, deputy secretary for policy, the deputy secretary for intelligence, at the Ministry of uh, Defense, and you have sycophants being introduced to all of these uh, positions. 
And at the same time this is taking place, you have the attorney general of this, say, country X at the Department of Justice uh, calling on his election crimes division to look for examples of uh, uh, fraud uh, in the election. And special prosecutors have already said there's no evidence of fraud whatsoever. And actually, the head of the cybersecurity unit of the, um, say, Department of Homeland Security has said this is the most secure election we've ever had. And two days later, his deputy is fired, along with the assistant secretary of Homeland Security for International Relations. So this, to me, if, you know, if I were analysts for this country, I'd be writing this up uh, saying there's great prob- probability of a coup about to take place, that this president has decided to seize the reins of government and to ignore the results uh, of the election. And I would write this up for senior policymakers and probably for the president of, of my country. Um, so, again, I'm not predicting a coup, and it's hard for me to wrap my brain around the idea of a military coup in this country. And our own chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, Milley, has already said the, uh, the oath that we swear to as a military officer is not to any king or queen or, or despot. Uh, it's to the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and we know that the Secretary of Defense, Esper, has been fighting these uh, premature withdrawals from Iraq and Afghanistan of the very small forces that are left there, which is uh, extremely important in terms of force protection when you have such a small number of, of forces in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, a few days after he writes that classified memo, uh, he's fired. Clearly, the, the reasons we're being given for this are unsatisfactory. You know, the, the New York Times was saying that uh, the Trump administration was just trying to put people into position so they could beef up their resumes for jobs uh, following the inauguration of Joe Biden. Well, I don't think Trump gives a damn about the, the people who work around him. He's not trying to beef up anyone's resumes. Before Donald Trump leaves office, if there isn't a coup d'etat, there are about 60 days left. What are your major concerns here over these next two months, given that there's some speculation that he might try to uh, create a firestorm by starting a war with Iran, maybe Venezuela, rocking uh, relations with other nations around the world as he leaves office? What, what are some of your top concerns? My real problem, I think the bottom line in all this, is Trump has done so much damage to our norms of democracy, that it's going to lead to increased cynicism uh, within the populace uh, toward the government, toward the Biden administration. There are too many Republicans who think that Biden is not a legitimate president and will not support a legitimate president. Uh, Why should young men and women sign up for military uh, missions abroad on behalf of presidential decision-making when they don't accept the credibility of this particular president. So tremendous damage is being done to U.S. governance and U.S. democracy, and that's that's my major concern. What is your response to the outright complicity or silence of many Republican legislators in the House and Senate when Donald Trump refuses to recognize his loss in the election and refuses this customary transition planning? To me, you've got a group of invertebrates who are now in commanding positions with what we used to think of as the Republican Party. 
uh, as far as I'm concerned, right now the Republican Party doesn't exist. Uh, until it gets rebuilt, it's going to be very difficult for uh, Biden to work with a Senate that's led by Mitch McConnell. And I don't expect these two runoff elections in Georgia to lead to a 50-50 uh, Senate. So McConnell will still wield uh, tremendous uh, power. And I think he will make the same commitment to his caucus that he made in 2009 when he said our major function is to make sure that Obama is a one-term president. They're going to do the same thing to Joe Biden. And when you add the element of a vice president who's a person of color and giving the animus and racism of the Republican Party, I think we're in for some very rough sledding. That was Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University, and author. His most recent book is titled American Carnage, The Wars of Donald Trump. Find more views on Mr. Trump's mass firings at the Pentagon by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Since entering politics, Donald Trump has had a long and positive relationship with Fox News. But when he gets annoyed at any demonstration of independence by network-talking heads, who don't completely toe his line, he urges his millions of loyal supporters to switch to other, even more right-wing news stations. When, during the 2020 election, Fox was the first network to call Arizona for Joe Biden, Trump promoted a little-known cable news channel called One America News Network and another conservative outlet, Newsmax. In recent days, OAN has broadcast videos that include false claims about the integrity of the election and dishonest assertions that Mr. Trump won. These OAN reports have collectively been viewed more than one million times on YouTube. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Matt Gertz, a senior fellow with Media Matters for America, who studies Trump's relationship with Fox News. Here he explains that Trump's promotion of other conservative networks is mostly smoke and mirrors. There has been this sort of push and pull between Trump and Fox through his presidency and really uh, dating back to the campaign to some extent. You might remember that in the first presidential debate of the 2016 primary cycle, the first time that Trump was appearing on stage with all of the other Republican candidates, Megyn Kelly asked him a very tough question about his treatment of women. And in the days after that, he got into a big feud with Fox and talked about how she had blood, quote, running out of her eyes, running out of her wherever. And there was a sort of back and forth between him and the network at that time. He has an expectation that every hour, every minute of Fox News be propaganda for his administration. He's made that very clear that the, he believes that the purpose of Fox News should be to help him and other Republicans win. And he's largely right. I mean, most of Fox's programming, I think, does have that, but he, he needs it all of the time. Matt Gertz, how does the One America News Network fit into Trump's world? Are you saying that was just a little tantrum he was having and he's back to Fox or what? 
Well, he's been saying from time to time, whenever he has one of these flare-ups, you know, he will tweet, everyone should go watch OAN instead, everyone should watch Newsmax instead, which is another one of these even Trumpier uh, conservative cable news networks. But he doesn't stay watching them, and the reason is that those networks are terrible. Fox News, I, I don't appreciate the programming, but it is well packaged. I mean, it, it looks professional and like a, a major cable news network. Uh, Newsmax and OAN do not have that. Um, their talent level is quite low. It's just not good television. I mean, it's, it's frankly nearly unwatchably bad. And the president knows this, which is why he doesn't actually watch it. He will tell his audience, go watch OAN. He will tell his audience, go watch Newsmax. But he won't actually do that. And, and I have the numbers to back this up. Um, so one of the things that I do at Media Matters is I track his tweets against the television shows that I know that he is watching. This is a combination of matching quotes uh, directly from his Twitter feed to particular programs. Over the, t the last two years, from September 2018 through August 2020, he sent 1,206 of these live tweets, uh, tweets that he was sending while watching the television program. Of those, 1,146 were of Fox News or Fox Business, and 12 were of OAN. This has continued through the current period. He was tweeting from Fox News shows uh, this very morning. Um, he does not stop. He does not break up with Fox News. He may publicly squabble with them, but at the end of the day, he is going to be watching their programs because that's what he likes to do. What do you think can be done about our news media, if we can call it that, becoming more and more bifurcated and more and more extreme? I mean, I, I think it's it's scary and it's it's dangerous. You know, I'm I'm in Washington D.C. I'm not. I uh, have been to uh, Comet Ping Pong, the pizza restaurant that was at the center of the uh, so-called Pizzagate conspiracy theories that uh, you know Democrats were hiding a child trafficking ring. Uh, in the basement there, and then you know somebody got addicted to these conspiracy theories and showed up with a gun and and fired off some rounds in the pizza parlor. And you know that's a that's a scary thing to see to see um, those conspiracy theories and and really just crazy ideas coming out into the real world like that. I, I think it's hard to know what the way out is of the sort of downward spiral that we're having with that. I think one of the, I think, less discussed problems has been the evaporation of local news over the last several years, the uh, elimination of, of local newspapers. I think that removed a key way for people to stay tethered to what was actually happening in their own communities. And instead they've gone out uh, and started going down various social media rabbit holes. Um, and that, I think that ends someplace pretty scary. That was Matt Gertz, a senior fellow with Media Matters for America. Find more commentary and analysis on U.S. media coverage of the Trump presidency by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archived programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.